0: Hey, everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're joined again by Brandon Grossart, a senior statistician and epidemiologist, to talk about p-values, clinical significance, survival analyses, and then um, some specifics on uh, reading journal articles and identifying limitations, things like that. Um, This is part two of our evidence-based medicine series. Brandon, thanks for joining us again.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: All right, uh, let's just start uh, right off the bat with p values. So perhaps one of the most controversial issues, um, when talking about stats, um, everybody wants a p value less than 0.05. That's becoming a, a hot button topic with uh, various articles, people writing viewpoints and things like that. And some of our and some of the biggest journals out there about um, lowering the p value, for instance, to 0.001 or things like that. Brandon, can you just start with defining a p value for us?
1: Yeah so this is uh, this is an area where as you said there's a lot of um kind of discussion and there's been even some official you know like opinions and and uh, stances that have been put out by large statistical organizations over the last few years um and you know I think the easiest way to talk about a p value is that um at least in the type of statistics that that we're going to be talking about you always start um your your thought processes by setting up a set of hypotheses. Um, and the normal way of thinking about it is that, you know, my hypothesis is that there is an effect um, of, you know, this risk factor or exposure with an outcome or disease of interest. And, you know, so though what's interesting about the way that you set up the hypotheses is that your what's called the null hypothesis or the thing that um, is kind of the the ground that you're, you're gathering data um, to try and um, suggest otherwise. The null hypothesis is that there's no, no effect. Um, the alternative hypothesis, which is the thing that you're actually gathering data for and, and, and you're going to have evidence for, um, or at least in support of, um, the alternative hypothesis is that there is an effect. And so to put this in a, a little bit more concrete terms, you could think about this as a you know hazards ratio equals 1 means that there's no association between whatever my exposure was and my outcome of interest, Um, the alternative is then the opposite of that, is that the hazards ratio is not equal to 1. And if you have no a priori or kind of like preconceived idea about whether uh, an exposure should be protective or put you at higher risk of an outcome, then your alternative hypothesis can mean that your hazards ratio is less than 1, would be protective, or higher than 1, Uh, would be a higher risk or or, um, a risk factor for um, higher risk of that particular outcome. And the data that you gather for a study on which you then calculate the hazards ratio and a p-value is data that is evidence for the alternative hypothesis, if you will. Um, And so a p-value just says that assuming that the null hypothesis is true, that there's no effect what is the probability of observing my data that I gathered, what is the probability of observing that data or data more extreme than that data if the null hypothesis is true? Um, And that's kind of a, it's a fine point or a fine distinction between saying that it's the probability that the null hypothesis is true. Um, And so I understand why people sometimes Think of the p-value as um, the probability that there's no effect. I understand why people confuse those two things. And it's, a like I said, a very fine point. It actually doesn't bother me as much as it may bother some other people uh, when people say that. Um, and I think the reason why it doesn't bother me is that at least they're interpreting it in the way that will get them to the right final answer, which is that a small p-value means that your evidence does not agree with your null hypothesis. Um, Now, the specifics and gory details of, you know, it's the probability of the null hypothesis being correct, um, that doesn't bother me as much as it might bother some other people. But the the, the takeaway point is that the p-value is, the smaller the p-value is, it means that your evidence is more suggestive um, or is more in agreement with the alternative hypothesis than the null hypothesis.
0: Most journals will, um, and most journal articles, will set a statistical significance threshold of 0.05. Is there anything magical about that 0.05?
1: There is not anything magical about that uh, 0.05. And so that 0.05 comes from a a one out of 20 chance. And it it goes back to, I guess, what I would call the early days of statistics. and so, you know, Ronald Fisher back in, I don't remember what year it was. Like 1920s or something, right? Yeah, yeah, it was in the teens or the 20s, I believe. Um, kind of said that he was willing to accept a one in 20 chance that what he found uh, was a false positive. Um, and I don't even remember what the, what the specific study he was involved in that he was looking at, but uh, it, it probably was not in humans. Um, and it, it was kind of the early um, early days of 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 this idea of of um p values and significance um but it is it, i i think that outside of notwithstanding the history of it um i think that the the important part is to realize that the 0.05 is is a convention um it is not it is not magical it is not something that is black or white on on either side depending on which side you're on it is it is something that is, is highly confusing, um, but also somewhat contentious because people tend to think that if their p-value is greater than 0.05, that at least historically, that they're much less likely to get published. Um, but p-values are, when you think about how they're constructed, that my evidence, you know, this is the probability of, of the null hypothesis um, being true, which is what you've kind of said. But... Um, is not the proper way of of interpreting a p-value, but it's the probability of observing my data or data more extreme than my data, assuming that the null hypothesis is true. What happens is that the assumption that the null hypothesis is true, the distribution around that, if you think of it as, just think of a bell curve, that bell curve to which you're comparing gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the bigger bigger your sample size gets. And so you can find really tiny p values for things that really have again from an epidemiology standpoint the thing you're more interested in is the size of the effect so not is the hazards ratio significant but how big is the hazards ratio um if it's 1.1 and so you're basically saying that there's a 10% increased risk of the outcome um is that really is that really something that's meaningful or something that should um be taken uh, as as something that should change clinical practice, and so this the, this p-value argument um, can be, I don't want to say that it's 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 done with like a, a malintent or anything like that. The way that the p-value that p-values are used, but you can get you can buy. I guess what I'm saying is you can buy a statistic a statistically significant p-value um, if you can make your sample size large enough in your study. Um, and so it should always be, the importance of a p-value should always be paired together with the size of the effect that it is measuring, um, because the size of the effect is the thing that is determinate, is a determination of whether or not something is clinically meaningful versus whether if something is just statistically meaningful or statistically significant.
0: Getting ahead of me a little bit here. Let's talk about effect size and clinical significance here in just one second. But just two two other points. Um, I get and just to drive this home. Then so basically, you're telling me then that a p value of 0.04 and a p value of 0.06 is really maybe not that different.
1: I would agree with that statement. Um, and I um, I usually push back if journals ask me to um, to kind of like uh, use particular wording for one side of the 0.05 versus the other side of the 0.05. Right. Like P is, it's not significant. P is greater than 0.05 and you don't report what the actual P value was. Correct. Correct. So it's important that you always, when you're reporting and when you're, when you're writing a paper and when you're interpreting other papers, hopefully the journal has a standard or um, a way of showing you the actual data. And so if the P value is 0.06, as a reader, I want to know that that it is what maybe some people would call marginally significant. Um, another, I, I mean, it's still suggestive to me that the data that you gathered um, was not consistent with the, the assumption that the null hypothesis was true. Um, it, is, it is suggestive. If your p-value is 0.06, it, it is su- suggestive that your evidence or evidence more extreme than your evidence w- is not consistent with the null hypothesis. Um, and so... I would not interpret that much differently than I would 0.04. So yeah, I, I agree with that hundred percent.
0: And then last um, question related to this. So we're saying um, that one of the, one of the critical assumptions is you're assuming the, the null hypothesis or that the null hypothesis is true, but then you're also may, there are inherent to the statistical model you're creating. There's other assumptions you're making along the way. And um, it's also assuming that those assumptions are valid assumptions. I guess, could you speak to that element of it?
1: Yeah, so the assumptions you make in different types of analyses vary. Um, so like in a Cox proportional hazards model, when you're calculating um, a hazards ratio, you're, one of the assumptions that you're supposed to check and, um, and that the model kind of was developed on at least is this idea of proportional hazards, which just means that essentially your, your risk is, is constant across um, the duration of the time that you followed these people up. Um, if you're doing some types of of uh, linear regression, some of the assumptions when you throw variables into the model to look for associations between X and Y, some of the assumptions are are often that you'll have um, that something is roughly normally distributed, um, or you know that there's no that there's no which is like a, just a big fancy word that means that um, the variance of that variable doesn't change um, across the kind of range of it. Uh, which and and what you 'll find is that though all of the statistics theory um, says that some of those that that those assumptions are are important um, if I do a cox proportional hazards model and I find an h r of three um, more often than not i 'm also going to probably in some of my exploratory testing of these assumptions. Uh, you will sometimes find that these assumptions don't hold. Now, that doesn't that doesn't mean that the result that you got is not useful. Um, it just means that you have to be careful about how you interpret it, or maybe you should do a sensitivity analysis to try and, you know, tease out a little bit more information about, you know, okay, my HR was actually, it's three if I just plug everything into the model in a straightforward way. But really, there's kind of, there's kind of two pieces to my HR. And so in the first four years of observation, the hazards ratio was maybe two. And then in the the from year five through year 10, the hazards ratio was four. And so on average, it was three, but there is kind of like the split. And so that's where you end up. Oftentimes reviewers will say, if something doesn't meet your assumptions, how did you try and take care of it? And so you'll see transformations for variables sometimes where you'll take the log of that variable if it's not normally distributed. Or you'll, they'll want you to do, uh, if you're doing a Cox proportional hazards model for a cohort study type analysis, time-to-event analysis, um, they'll want you to do an analysis, a sensitivity, set of sensitivity analyses where you split your time of follow-up into, you know, the, the different pieces where there's a suggestion that the, the risk might de, might deviate from um, proportional hazards. So you
0: had already started to get into this when talking about p-values, but effect size, clinical significance. Um, maybe we should start with the confidence interval. Can you talk to us about how to read a confidence interval, looking at each end, uh, understanding precision um, and how that relates to effect size and clinical significance?
1: Yeah, so a confidence interval, um, so in statistics, we create these things that are called parameters. Um, and so you, you're, you're trying to estimate, I guess you will, these parameters. And so one of In a very simplistic way, something that people are often familiar with is a slope. Um, And so if you have an X variable on the horizontal axis and a Y variable on the vertical axis of a plane um, and you have a cloud of points, one of the things that you can do is you can fit a line to that cloud of points. Um, And in statistics, really your goal is to say, okay, I want to fit a straight line to this. And so it's going to be of the form Y equals MX plus B, where M is the slope, B is the intercept. Um, And, you know, kind of back to the basics of algebra. And so then you do this statistical magic where you essentially, you minimize some measure of delta of the points around this thing to get the optimal line fit. Um, And when you get that line, the parameters that you're estimating are the M, and the b from that y equals mx plus b. Um, And so m is the slope of that line, b is the intercept of that line, and so they are straightforward standard ways of calculating the slope and the the intercept. But associated with that slope and associated with that intercept are some um, fuzziness of precision, if you will. And so we're not completely sure that if we were to replicate this study again that we would get the same slope um, or the same intercept. And so a confidence interval is really, it's it's a measure of precision saying that, you know, and the reason we normally calculate 95% confidence intervals. And so you would normally hear people saying, I'm 95% confidence that the true parameter, whatever that parameter is, the slope parameter, or intercept parameter, falls within this range. Um, and that's really calculated and is a function of how big your data set is. Um, and the variability of the points, Uh, within your data that you observed. And so the bigger the data set you have, then the more confident you are of the slope estimate. Um, And if the points are very tight around the line that you fit, you're also more confident um, of the estimate that if you were to redo the study, that again, um, it would come up with something that was similar to what you got the first time. And so confidence intervals should really be interpreted as... Um, so say, for example, we move away from this uh, plane of points and X versus Y um, kind of association. And now instead, we're trying to estimate hazards ratio. And again, the hazards ratio is an estimate of the essentially you can think of it as the the ratio of risk uh, between one group and another group. And so when you look at them on a on a plot, as a Kaplan-Meier curve, for example, it'll be two lines. And it's really the the, the ratio of the, the chance of having an outcome, the ratio of having the, or, or the risk of having the outcome in the exposed group divided by the risk of having the outcome in the unexposed group. So it's a ratio of hazards. That's why it's called a hazards ratio. Um, and what is that a measure of? It's trying to estimate the the risk ratio, which is essentially... Again, on the on the scale that makes more sense logically to think about, it is a measure of the multiplicative effect of risk in one group versus the other group. And so, a hazards ratio of two means that the exposed group, um, or uh, the you know the group A that had the exposure of interest, as compared to the the reference group, was has two times the risk of having the outcome that you were looking at in that time-to-event analysis. Now that two times the risk is going to have associated with it a confidence interval. And what does that mean? It just means that there's a little bit of gray area um, that you're not completely sure that the risk is exactly two, um, but it is close to two within within reason uh, based on these 95% confidence intervals. And those confidence intervals, again, are a function of how big is your sample, um, and how well does your model fit to those data? Uh, and so if if the data you observe follow the assumptions of proportional hazards, uh, which means that you can fit a hazards curve um, to those data and that the points are very tight around those data, just like when I talked about the cloud of points, it can be a very dispersed cloud of points or it can be a very tight cloud of points um, and the number of points that you have. Um, those are the things, in other words, the variability and the sample size um, are the two things that that dictate how wide the confidence interval is um, around those parameter estimates. In this case, the parameter we're talking about is the hazards ratio, um, and the tighter the confidence interval just means that if I were to replicate this study, I would expect to find a result in a replicated study as long as it's done the same way I did my study um, that is quite close to... Um, being within that interval most of the time. So maybe just, uh, I guess, putting everything
0: together, then effect size would be the magnitude of that hazard ratio in your example, let's say 2.0, and asking yourself, is that a clinically meaningful effect size rather than like 1.01 or something like that? Um, And then the idea of precision would be that width of that confidence interval in in terms of just either end of the confidence interval. And then when we apply that clinically saying, asking the question, then if at either end of this confidence interval, is this a clinically meaningful result?
1: Right. So if, if, if you formulate things, uh, the normal way of formulating things is is so that numbers that are spit out of the machinery, the statistical machinery are larger than one. Um, People seem to be able to understand things that put you at a higher risk, better than than things that protect you. I'm not saying that's the way it's always done, but things are often formulated because you can flip definitions. So if if something is protective, then the opposite of that something will be a higher risk. And so it's just a coding mechanism for how you push things through the model. But normally, exactly what you said, the size of that effect. And so if that hazards ratio is two, that's important, but that has to be interpreted together with the information about precision about that hazards ratio. And so if I, if I have two different studies and, and the hazards ratio is 2.0 in both of them, but in one of them, the, the confidence interval is 1.89 to 2.13, and in the other one, the confidence interval is 1.1 to 3.7, um, the second one is clearly a much bigger window of possibilities uh, for what the true effect could be. Um, Again, if reading this in terms of the 95% confidence interval is that I'm 95% confidence that the true population parameter is within this interval, um, it it means that you're less sure about that estimate of 2.0 in the study where the confidence interval is wider. Um, It doesn't mean necessarily that that study is not done as well or um, that there's something wrong with that study because that width of that interval is a function of the variability in your data um, and the number of people who are included in your analyses. Um, or for uh, for timed event analyses, it's actually not the number of people included in your analyses, but the number of observed events. Um, it's the informative number um, for that analysis. But functionally speaking, it's the number, how big is your study in terms of size of people um, and how wild do your very vari- do your measurements um uh kind of like how how much are they spread out. Um, and so in general, um if that interval is tight around a number that is clinically meaningful, and the definition of clinically meaningful is really something that a statistician is not involved in that decision. That is something that really a clinician or somebody who's more um, kind of uh, familiar with what you're measuring really should be the person who's involved in determining what is and it is not clinically significant. And that is, I will warn you, a completely subjective, usually a completely subjective measure. Um, I mean, I mean, there may be some ability to get agreement between physicians or clinicians about what's meaningful, but um, they're not always going to agree on exactly the same thing. Um, but so that that determination of clinical significance is really something that is out of the hands of a statistician um, but is something that should be important about how your results are f- are written up, how the results are framed, and um, imp- what their implications could be to clinical practice. Because, you know, su- suppose that your effect size is 1.1. 1. 1. 1. 1 1.1 is not a very, you know, a 10% increased risk of an outcome is not a very um, not a very exciting thing for most areas um, of of evidence-based medicine. Um, but if it's a 10% increased risk of mortality, um, that could be interesting if, you know, if it's a 10% increased risk. It, it In other words, how you interpret the size and clinical significance also depends on what the outcome is. Um, some things hold more weight in terms of badness than other things.
0: So, so far, we've established that there's nothing special about 0.05 in terms of a p-value. It's all about the clinical significance. I mean, it's not that the p-value is worth nothing, but it just needs to be put in its appropriate context. And then talking about clinical significance, thinking about effect size, thinking about the width of the confidence interval. Related to all of this, sometimes we read in studies a priori power calculations that are done in the... Kind of statistical planning phase of a study. Can you touch a little bit on what goes into that? What what does that mean um, when a study says that it's capable of detecting, you know, this um, this outcome with this power? Kind of verbiage.
1: Yeah. So at the stage where you at the stage where you set up the initial design of a study before you've done the study, most of the time um, before people will give you money to do a study, um, they'll want you to prove that you have the capability of doing the study so that you can estimate the effect within a certain level of precision, if you will. Um, and functionally, what that means is they want to make sure that if the association between your exposure and your outcome is real, which again, you never you never know, that's what you're trying to gather evidence for, that you will find it. Um, in other words, if, for example, you you wanted to look at Pesticide exposure and uh, vestibular schwannoma, or something like that. If you design this study to look at and create these cohorts of, you know, high pesticide exposure, low pesticide exposure, are you able to create those cohorts with enough people in them that the estimate you get for the relationship between pesticide exposure and this outcome will be found? That you will you will find it. And when I say will be found i mean will you be able to detect it from a statistical standpoint um and so power calculations are formulated so that i do a power calculation that says in my particular study if there is a signal i will find it x percent of the time now this is kind of the 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 opposite of the way that you set up hypotheses but and again remember the null hypothesis in the normal way that you do statistical hypothesis testing is that there is no effect, um, and then you try and gather data to suggest that your data suggests that the null hypothesis is probably not true, um, with a small level of p-value, again, is the level that says that I'm going to observe my data or data more extreme than my data, assuming the null hypothesis is true. Uh, When you do a power calculation, you're almost kind of flipping this on its head. You're saying that assume that there is an effect How big does that effect have to be for me to detect it if you have a fixed sample size? Or if you're able to vary your sample size, how big of a sample size do I need to detect a clinical estimate or like a risk estimate of a certain size? And so there are two ways of doing power analyses, I guess is what I'm saying, is that sometimes you have a fixed fixed size cohort and you can't control or add more people to it. It is what it is. It's, it's what your population is. It's how you can follow it forward. And what's reported in a, in a power analysis in that sense is how small of a hazards ratio can I detect? What's the smallest detectable hazards ratio? The other way of formulating power or that you'll see in in uh, in grant writing and, and that kind of thing is when you have the ability to recruit more patients or change the size of your sample because you have a fixed level of, of uh, clinical significance that you want to be able to detect. Um, so in the first set, I say, I have a fixed population. The minimum detectable hazard ratio I can find is 1.3. In the second one, in the second framework where you can adjust the size of your sample, you can say, in order to detect a hazard ratio of 1.3, I need to recruit this many people. Um, so there are two different formulations of power statements. Um, normally, in my work, the size of the population is fixed, and so I'm able to just tell tell you that with 90% or 80% power, um, I will be able to detect an HR of this minimum size or larger, um, given that sample size. In the end, what does that mean? You are powering a study to say, normal. the standard ways of powering a study are either using 80 or 90% power. Um, and what... What you the way that you kind of formulate that statement is is you say, I will have enough people in my study, and I will be able to collect data for enough people that eighty percent or ninety percent of the time, whichever one you're calculating the power for, I will be able to detect a um, clinical uh, whatever the thing I mean whatever thing you're measuring is, and so it can be an odds ratio or a hazards ratio or a slope or whatever, but let's just say hazards ratio. 90% of the time I will be able to detect a hazards ratio, as long as that hazards ratio is 1.5 or higher or 1.7 or higher. And so what a power statement is really saying is it's guaranteeing the people who are going to give you money to do your research that you are going to be able to, with that money and given your resources, detect something that is clinically meaningful and relevant to advance science forward. So if your minimum detectable HR was four, almost nothing in science has a hazards ratio of, of four, four times risk in an exposed group versus an unexposed group. And so given what resources you had, if you told a funding agency, I'll be 80% of the time, I'll be able to detect the hazards ratio of four or larger, you're probably not gonna get money because that's well outside of and much larger than what the normal range of a hazards ratio you would need to detect would be for clinical significance.
0: How does that play into the actual Hazard ratio that you observe on the back end. Let's say you get a hazard ratio of 1.5. You know, you said uh, at the power calculation, you said you have 90% chance that I'll be able to detect um, with our current cohort size a hazard ratio of 1.5 or greater. Um, But then, let's say you actually get a hazard ratio of 1.5, and the p value is 0.05 or 0.06 or something like how like how does the 90% chance that Power calculation you did at the beginning have does that have anything to do with the percent probability of you know of rejecting the null hypothesis? All that are those ideas interconnected at all?
1: They are not. Um, so so once once you've powered a study and said that if there's a finding there, I will be able to find it ninety percent of the time if it's this big or bigger. That's in the preparatory phase of research, um, and actually there are two different parameters essentially that you're setting in the power in the power um, calculations, you're spending, setting something that's called a type 2 error rate um, or beta um, is the common phrase the common um, Greek letter that's used to talk about the type 2 error. Um, and the type 2 error is basically just saying that if there is an effect, if there is really an effect, again, which we never know. We never know for sure. But if there is really an effect and it is this big or bigger, I will detect it 90% or 80% of the time, whichever uh, power setting you've, you've set. Now, once you start doing the study, you've fixed that power to convince the people to give you money to do your research. But what you find is no longer dependent on uh, the, the findings you get at the end of your study is no longer dependent on what you reported to someone as the power um, of of your study up front. That is now something that's called a type 1 error, um, and you minimize the type 1 error, or alpha, based on what threshold you use to deem significance um, of your findings when you actually calculate your sample parameter. Um, So again, they're they're kind of two different, uh, they're in kind of two different worlds, now, do I when I say they're completely unrelated, they are not, I wouldn't say they're completely unrelated because there is a relationship between the precision you're going to get around your, your estimate um, is going to be kind of associated with both of them. But beta becomes less important or essentially becomes unimportant once you've actually done your study. Um, I find it always a little bit odd when reviewers come in after the fact um, and I'm trying to write a paper on something that's already done and they say could you do a post hoc power calculation it's it's always weird for me to come up with the clever way to softly tell them no because it doesn't at that point it doesn't really have any meaning what matters at that point is the precision of what i actually found um and that precision is based on what cutoff you use which the standard of we talked about this earlier the convention is 0.05 um but that Precision associated with my estimate of my parameter, in this case maybe a hazard ratio or whatever, um, what cutoff I use to deem significant or not significant is associated with a different type of error because now I've framed the question and the hypothesis I'm testing is the null hypothesis is that there is no effect. The alternative hypothesis that I actually have evidence or I've gathered data for um, and and that I'm actually statistically testing um, is that there is an effect um, and my data say that if the null hypothesis is true my data or data more extreme than mine would only occur this percentage this often Um, that's what the p-value is the probability of observing my data or data more extreme than my data given the null hypothesis is true whereas for the beta calculation you've you've somewhat flipped that on its head um, and you say that how big does my effect have to be away from the null hypothesis for me to detect it, given that I have this big of a sample size um, and this much follow-up and this amount of vivence and and all that kind of stuff? Does hopefully that that helps to to separate those two ideas a little bit? In short, I would say that power calculations are something you do at the stage when you're writing a protocol and you're asking for someone to fund you to do your research to convince them that you will be able to find a signal of a relationship between an exposure and an outcome within a reasonably um, logical range of clinical significance. Whereas the type one error, which is that you've you fail to find something um, that's real is something that you can never know, but you try and minimize by using a threshold cutoff, uh, or this thing we call a p-value, um, that is below whatever you're willing to accept as the possibility of a type 1 error. There are two different things. Um, normally, way, nor, normally the way of thinking about this is a 2 by 2 table, where you talk about what the reality is and then what your evidence suggests. Um, and in two of those cells on the diagonal of that 2 by 2 table, are the possibilities that there really is an effect and you don't find it um, or that there is no effect but you do find one um, and so they're kind of the false negative and false positive equivalents and beta and alpha are the things that you the parameters that you set during the research processes um, so for power i normally you normally set um, a beta of 0.1 if you want 90 percent power it's 1 minus beta um, or as point 0.2 if you want 80% power. And those, again, are just saying that 90% of the time or 80% of the time I'll find it if it's real. Um, and then the alpha is something that's at the end of your study, you say, I'm going to use an alpha of, again, the convention is 0.05, two-tailed alpha of 0.05. You'll see that in lots of publications is what we used as the definition of, of significance. Um, and what does that mean? It means that there's only a 5% chance that you missed something that is real, if that makes sense. And so it's it's the other way of making an error. It's uh so you found a, a false negative um instead of a false positive. Now, I will say that there are often times where one is alpha and beta are that, that those kind of need to be balanced um in terms of like their importance. And so if you set up a study and and you're studying this surgery improves mortality. And so you power your study and you say that I need, you know, I need to recruit X number of people and they'll be split half and half. And then I'll look at outcomes for death. And because death is your outcome here, um, if there's a real effect of surgery on death, um, so maybe surgery type B is worse or something like that, um, then you sometimes will want to use a higher, a higher beta. Um and so what do I mean by that? I mean, like, or actually, I guess it's a higher percentage power and a lower beta. Um, but you may want to say that if there is an effect, I want to be able to find it 90% of the time instead of 80% of the time. Um, and the decision to use 80 versus 90, sometimes what comes into play is is the specific relationship you're looking at between exposure and outcome. Um, if it's something that you really don't want to miss something that is real, Um, Then you can power your study to have more power to find it. Um, If it is something that at, at the end of your study, you don't want to say that an association exists, but it doesn't exist, you can use a stricter cutoff for your level of significance. I don't I'm hope I hope I'm making myself my myself clear. But in the end, to answer your question in simple terms. They're independent. Uh, they're independent constructs. They're parameters that you set uh, to minimize the possibility of making errors in your research. Um, and that beta is something you set before you do your research study. Alpha is something that you choose or decide what you're going to use um, to determine whether or not you meet quote-unquote statistical significance after you've gathered your your data and are now reporting on it. Let's
0: shift gears here a little bit and talk about uh, survival analyses. This is something we encounter commonly, especially or specifically Kaplan-Meier curves. Can you talk, uh, we don't need to spend a, a ton of time on this, but just touch on some of the key assumptions that a Kaplan-Meier curve makes or what goes into a Kaplan-Meier curve, kind of the pitfalls of interpreting um, those diagrams, things like that.
1: Yeah, so a Kaplan-Meier curve is, the, the goal of a Kaplan-Meier curve is essentially to get you um, and the normal way of doing Kaplan-Meier curves, you'll often see them. It will actually be two lines um, on the same plot. You don't always have to have two lines. Um, and those two different lines correspond to two different groups. Um, the, the goal of a Kaplan-Meier curve is to try and come up with a visual representation of time-to-event data, taking into account that people can essentially kind of be lost to follow-up or disappear from your risk sets, if you will. Um, and that's completely out of your control. And so, you know, in a in a time-driven analysis, people are normally aligned um, on the um, x-axis, the horizontal axis um, in a Kaplan-Meier plot. So that time zero, whatever that may be, the time that you're given a treatment or the time that you had a surgery or whatever, um, is your time zero. Um, and then the y-axis is normally the percent of people who are whatever the opposite is of your outcome. And so if, if your outcome is death, it's the percent of people who are still alive. Um, and so if your outcome is reoperation for a surgery or something like that, then it's the percent of people who are not reoperated, et cetera. So these, these curves normally start from 100% in the upper left-hand corner, um, and they kind of slowly creep down um, as time goes on. And what these representations are supposed to be is the proportion of people after X number of years on the uh, on the X axis um, that have not had the outcome of interest. Um, and so again, if your outcome is death, those lines would creep down, um, and the line represents the number of people from your original population who are still alive, so they have not experienced the outcome of interest. Um, the interesting thing about the Kaplan-Meier curve is that it has built into it the ability to deal with these what are called in time-driven analyses sensors which is essentially when people are no longer under observation and did not have the outcome of interest and so the normal thing that you think of for this is that you know somebody had a surgery um we were able to follow them follow them for maybe 6 to 8 months and then they moved away they moved in with their kids in a different state or they um, they just naturally moved away because they moved to a different state for a job or something like that. Anyway, you're not able to follow them anymore. Um, and so the <clears throat> the term that's used for how we treat those people in the analysis is censored. Um, and what that means is essentially that their, their, their piece of time that they're contributing to the outcome is um, truncated um, at that point in time. And they're no longer in the risk set. And so in a Kaplan-Meier estimator, what it does is at every point in time where there is a sensor or where there is an outcome, um, it recalculates the risk set. So you can think of this as a, a essentially kind of a vertical line that's marching through time, um, marching through time on your x-axis. And every time that there is a, um, what really matters are the events, not the sensors, but you'll you'll want to to know where the sensors are as well. But every time where there is an event, you'll draw that vertical line at that specific instance in time. And you'll say, what is the total number of people at risk? And what are the number of people who had an event at that point in time? And so what's nice about this is that, so say say in group A, you started with 10 people. And the first time somebody dies at one year out, all 10 of them are still in the risk set. So you have nine uh, nine people who are alive and the one person who died. So it's one divided by 10. Um, that's the proportion of people who died at that point. And so your line would go down by 10%. Um, so 10% of people have died. Uh, 90% of them are still alive. But suppose that two years out of those nine, nine people who are alive, at two years out, the next time somebody dies, only seven of them are left in the, left in the risk set. So you now have this line that's been going at 0.9, your survival line's been going at 0.9 for between one year and two year. But now somebody dies um, at two years, but the people that are left in the risk set at that point in time is only seven of the nine that were there at one year. And so one of those seven people die. Um, And so this now is one divided by seven, which is 14%, instead of what would have been one divided by nine uh, which is 11%. And so this product limit estimate um, is what it's called in terms of its kind of multiplicative effect, such that what what's important is the risk set at every instant in time where an event occurs. Um, and so then the proportion of people that have the event at that instant in time is divided by only the people who are still in the risk set at that point in time, so what this tries to get at is that 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 you don't want to continue to say that anybody who's lost a follow-up is alive forever um, um, because eventually what's going to happen is that your product limit estimate, eventually everybody will die. This is not earth-shattering. Everybody eventually dies. And so your line you want to eventually end at, 0% are surviving. And if you carry forward people who are lost to follow-up, and for whom you never are able to assess the outcome, your line, your percent survival line, will not ever reach zero. Um, And this is problematic um, because it doesn't reflect the reality of um, kind of the face face value test or the face value um, reality of what Um, we know is, is true. And so that's why this product limit estimator was created and it was created a long time ago, I believe in the 1950s. But the point is to come up with the visual display of time to event data, taking into account that people can leave your risk set um, for reasons that are not under your control. All
0: right, Brandon, last um, topic I wanted to ask you a little bit about is just surrounding reading journal articles, um, interpreting the literature, some of the pearls and pitfalls of, of reading uh, research reports. And maybe we could just start with how, how you, generally speaking, if you're, if you're assessing a paper for you know bringing something into clinical practice, for example, maybe we can talk about strategies for reading articles. I think oftentimes, at least in a lot of the ENT literature, for example, the methods section, as a little of like a subtle indicator of importance, is a smaller font size than the other sections. But maybe that might be inversely correlated to the importance for understanding the applicability of this study. So maybe could you touch on some of those ideas and just major pearls and pitfalls you think about when reading research articles?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I would say that the first thing I do when I'm Going to start reading a paper, either just out of general curiosity because I'm reading the paper or because I'm a a referee or or doing a review for a paper for a journal. I normally just read it from beginning to end um, and try and get a a better feel for what it is. And I usually take notes and draw pictures um, to see if I can get a feel for what it is that which, what is the question they're trying to answer. Um, and specifically what I'm trying to do when I draw when I draw these little schematics or pictures is I'm trying to make sure that I understand the temporality component or the cause-effect direction of what they're trying to say. Um, and so, you know, what is the exposure versus what is the outcome, or if you want to frame it as a mathematician, statistician, what is the X versus the Y, independent versus dependent variable, uh, whatever, you know, like kind of set of synonyms you want to use there but i i i want to make sure that i'm understanding okay they've done they've done this study to try and see whether this thing that they're hoping is the cause or or implying is the cause um and sometimes i do air quotes around cause because again we know that associations and causes aren't definitive and this thing is associated with or causes this outcome and then i see how they went about designing their study did they start from like in a case control study, the outcome, or did they start from the exposure or the risk factor, like in a cohort study? Um, And, you know, there are little little tips and tricks you can use to try and tease some of that information out of the tables without even necessarily understanding all of the gory details of the methods section. Uh, Like, for example, if the tables are reporting and explicitly saying that they're reporting hazards ratios, then the type of analysis they had to have done to get a hazards ratio is a time-to-event analysis, which is done in a cohort study. By contrast, if their results are reported as odds ratios, um, that is the type of analysis that is more consistent with a case control study um, and would have been done using logistic regression. And so sometimes you can pull that information or synthesize the information as a whole um, by some pieces come from the methods um, description, some pieces come from what you 're seeing in the actual tables, and sometimes you 'll have to to even dig into the supplemental material to try and and understand a little bit more uh, what they specifically um, have done and how they 're trying to account for you know so we talked a lot before about there 's all a whole host of different types of biases there 's also this thing called confounding. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about that, but it's it's a characteristic that kind of like goes along with another thing. Um, the classic example is uh, alcohol use and smoking. Um, alcohol use is associated with uh, is associated with lung cancer if you look at it on its own, but it's really associated with lung cancer because it's a, a, a confounded with or occurs at the same time as smoking or in the same people who smoke. Um, and so alcohol is really a confounder in the in its association with uh, lung cancer um, in all of our understanding of that kind of relationship now, or most of it. Um, and the real interesting effect that you're interested in is smoking causes lung cancer. And so anyway, there are these other factors that sometimes go along for the ride with your exposure of interest that you'll want to sometimes rule out or, or somehow adjust for in an analytical way. And so sometimes you can get into the weeds a bit by reading the methodology of they did this sensitivity analysis and this, you know, this other set of sensitivity analyses, or they threw some extra things into the model to try and quote unquote adjust for things. Um, And so just trying to keep track of, you know, what, what hoops they're jumping through and what, you know, like what things they've thought about, um, in there, uh, assessing the relationship between the exposure and the outcome, and making sure that they're not doing any funny business behind the scenes to try and, you know, like make their paper more publishable, if you will, uh, by getting a p-value down to something that's below the kind of arbitrary threshold of 0.05. That 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 uh, then kind of becomes a little bit more appealing for some journals and and editors to to pay attention to. And and so that high level uh, initial review and maybe like a a little sketch or two of of the relationship between the cause effect um, again air quote cause um, and effect are are normally the places where I start um, and then you know reading the results paying attention to table one is always a nice a nice thing to do um, because table one is is often the place where you're reporting on the baseline differences between. The groups and so be it a case control study, uh, the differences between cases and controls um, on characteristics or risk factors or whatever, or the difference between exposed and unexposed or referent people if it's a cohort study and and if anything pops out in my mind there that you know maybe they they should have adjusted for this or or somehow analytically uh, taken care of the possibility of something being a confounder. Um, then those, those will be things that kind of flow to the top. Um, I would say that I don't spend a huge amount of time when I'm reviewing a paper um, dealing with necessarily whether the p-values met a certain threshold of 0.05 or not 0.05. Um, I I spend a lot of time in the methods section um, because I I really am a believer in the garbage in, garbage out kind of philosophy. Of research. And if you don't spend the time to to think about and, and to uh, design a study well up front, then there are, are, are no set of tools, statistical or otherwise, that are going to solve those problems um, at the ana- analytical s- stages of a uh, paper.
0: I think that's really helpful, Brandon, just the emphasis on the methods. I mean, oftentimes you can be swayed by reading too much into the introduction or discussion about the the author's um, argument there. And it's, it's a little bit more objective to just stick to the methods and results. But either way, I think that pretty much wraps up all the questions I had for this second portion of our evidence-based medicine uh, series, mini-series here. Is there anything we didn't cover in this second part here that, um, or anything you'd like to mention for anyone listening?
1: Yeah, there was just the one, one last little... Um, document that will be out there available in the PDF form that was, it's it's essentially a one page cheat sheet, if you will, of how to formulate some of the uh, interpretation of results for the case control study and cohort study, res- um, different study designs. Um, just as an example, you know, like it allows, it allows people to kind of do like a um an ad lib type plug in the word here type thing to interpret an odds ratio where it's the odds of the risk factor in the case group are this many times that of the of the control group. Um, the difference between the odds ratio and then the hazards ratio, where the risk of the outcome for the exposed group is this many times that of the unexposed group. Um, and so it's it, it's it's just a, a nice little kind of like I said one page um, sheet that I will be sure to include in that PDF document uh, for your listeners.
0: Thanks so much, Brandon. Yeah, we will publish that online on our website, headmirror.com. You can find it associated with the published episode. All right, well, that will wrap things up for today. Um, No summary or or questions again for this portion, but Brandon, just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and um, and all the teaching on these high yield topics.
1: Yeah, it's definitely my pleasure, John. I hope you found some of this uh, helpful and your listeners uh, also find it helpful.
0: All right, well, that will wrap things up for the Evidence-Based Medicine mini-series. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.